0: The People's Constitution The Path to Empowerment of Australians in a 21st Century Democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 4 Essentials for a New Start as a Nation. In Chapter 2, I spoke of the nation's need to step up from the merely representative system of governance we call a democracy and jump to a fuller, genuine mode of democracy. But how big is that jump likely to be? What are the essential things we need to install in the Constitution, and how feasible will it be to achieve that? If the objective of all this is to give people power, to make them the source of their own sovereignty, then, granted, the required jump looks to be enormous – and we might question its feasibility. Indeed, from one perspective, it seems to be a reversal of everything we have assumed about effective arrangements of power for hundreds of years, comfortable arrangements to which we have subjected ourselves in the belief that they are the most likely to lead to stability, even though the weight of evidence is that they support all manner of destabilising forces, and it is by no means certain that current power arrangements in modern states, including states that claim to be democratic, work effectively to control these destabilising forces. But regardless of whether the modern state is viewed as a failure or not in terms of stability, flipping it on its head, or, to be more accurate, adjusting roles and relationships in it so that a parliament becomes a servant to the will of the people expressed in their voice, that is clearly a big jump, especially if you happen to be among those who might fear losing some power or might be explicitly required to exercise it for purposes other than your own. However, from another perspective, a people's constitution is not a big jump, either for the electors or the elected. Indeed, for many of the elected, it could be a relief, a release from the endless, exhausting, adversarial argument to which they subject themselves, willingly, but not always enjoyably or productively, and from the often vicious pressure of lobbyists and corporate vested interests. I will expand on that later. For the moment, though, this is the important point. If the objective is to create fairer shares of power, with the people having not just the final say, as they do now on who ought to govern, but the first say on what those they elect shall do with that power, then that is a considerably smaller jump. Our existing democratic arrangements can quite easily accommodate that sort of alteration to the Constitution. From that perspective... The task at hand is not to effect some sort of radical overthrow of the system of governance that inheres in the modern state. Instead, it is to create a new type of relationship between the electors and the elected. It is to create the means by which electors can issue coherent instructions and guidance to the elected and to others empowered with a statutory role under the Constitution, such as the High Court or a Head of State. It is to create the means of orderly expression of the people's sovereign will and the terms of trust that will govern a new relationship of mutual obligation and respect between the electors and the elected. It is to place any necessary limits on what power may be used for and what it may not. And it is to give a voice, a prevailing voice, to those who at the moment are limited to and silenced by their vote. This new relationship requires both the elected and the electors to enter into a new understanding about their respective roles in the current process. The greatest shift will be required by the elected, since they will, for the first time, be required to admit that the electors have a role in governance of their own nation and in setting its direction, and that this role goes way beyond the mere process of voting. The elected will be required to give full, unqualified assent to the principle that they are elected to do what Australians want, not what they themselves want, or lobbyists want, or even what the majority of their particular constituency wants, if it disables policies that are in the national interest, as defined by the people. That will be very tough for the elected addicted to power and accustomed to evasion of accountability, as many of them are, it will be especially difficult in so far as the elected will be required to govern for all Australians, not just their electorate, if they are a member of the House of Representatives, or their state or territory, if they are a senator. But beyond that, a shift that admits the electors into a powerful role in their own governance will not of itself undermine or negate the power of the elected. If anything, it has more potential to verify their power, because it gives the people a mechanism for checking the degree to which it has been exercised in accordance with their specific will and is therefore legitimate. A lesser, or should I say less reluctant shift, will be required by the electors. The challenge for them will be to learn how to integrate their voices and build a coherent set of instructions for the elected. That challenge might be summarised like this. The electors will need to channel the voices they have always raised in activism and in protest, in think tanks and in universities, in unions and in the public service, in families and local community groups, in charities and churches, into a participatory integrated national planning and direction-setting process. I will explain this in more detail in Chapter 7, but in general it should be noted here that if Australians are to be able to speak coherently, they will need to build that voice in the form of a long-term integrated national plan, setting out what they want to create as a nation in terms of their preferred society, environment, economy and governance. The framework for this is already available and in use in Australia and indeed has been legislated at the level of local governance in several states. It's not a difficult framework for communities to understand or use but if electors are to have a voice they will need a process for orderly development of this voice to be enshrined in the constitution. The above suggested new arrangement of power does not change the location of a nominal head of state or the location of various types of power shared currently by the parliaments, which is legislative power, the executive government, administrative power, and the judicature, the power to determine legal disputes. No big jump of that kind is required at all. The new arrangement merely changes the location of the sovereign will, vesting it explicitly in the people. In this arrangement, it is a plural will that is sovereign, not a king's, queen's, parliament's or government's arbitrary will. So this is nothing like an attempt to shift power from one bunch of people, usually a political party, to another bunch of people, usually another political party. In fact, It has no bearing on that at all, because the democratic process in this type of constitution still requires elections and a handover of power from the electors to the elected. The only thing that is changing, or rather being added in, is that the terms of trust are being specified for the elected. The people are being given the means to define their will in writing. That might look like a big change, and conceptually it is, but even so, it does not require big, impossible procedural changes. It can be achieved by inserting a small number of elements into the Constitution, two of which are not radical or new, inasmuch as they have been popularly called for in recent decades. Those two are a statement of national values and a statement of human rights. The other elements of required constitutional change relate to establishing an enshrined voice for all, a mechanism to support development of that voice, namely the national planning and direction-setting process I spoke of above, and mechanisms for preventing undue influence in elections, corruption in governance, abuse of power, including through discrimination, and unauthorised ceding of sovereignty in international economic and defence transactions. The combination of those additions and alterations to the Constitution may appear to some to be an inversion of the relationship between the elected and the electors, but this is incorrect. It is more accurate to say that it will replace the current hierarchical relationship with a more productive partnership of equals, one which in itself has much more potential to create the stability that Western societies have always craved but which has never yet arisen from the arrangement of power we have relied on. More than that, though, this new arrangement, for the first time, offers Australians the possibility of unprecedented, fully inclusive social cohesion, and therefore a greater degree of control over their destiny. It can be structured to function as the double power I spoke of in Chapter 1, a negative force Enabling vigilance by the people against surges of unreasonable internal and external power or corruption, and a positive force, enabling the people to set the agenda for their future, to establish the specifics of their will. If we can build a new constitution incorporating these things, and we can, what we will find is that for the first time Australians can define what the nation stands for what we will and will not go to war for, what we value, what we regard as inalienable rights, what we envisage as the necessary minimum capacity to design our preferred future, our willingly shared destiny, what paths we are prepared to take to make that preferred future a reality, and what paths we want to avoid. In that regard, A new constitution is going to be all about ensuring we have the power to decide what we want, including what we want to become as a nation, and the means of confirming and conveying that will to parliaments. Who we want to govern us will become a secondary consideration, as it should be. For the last 230 years, we, the electors and the elected, have trundled along without That kind of guidance system. We defined what we wanted to be in 1901, but to date we have entirely skipped the process of defining what we want to become. However, very few Australians paying attention to the troubles of the world and at home would be likely to assume it is safe to trundle on through the 21st century with no guidance system and not even any idea of a preferred safe destination. Any constitution worth its salt needs to give its nation a process for that. A process for moving with the times, anticipating the future, defining where we want to go, what we want to avoid and the identity we want to share. Adapting to what we can't change, designing whatever change we deem vital and leading the way to an enabling form of democracy. This will require more than a few piecemeal amendments and a review mechanism for the Constitution, although, doubtless, a compulsory mechanism of regular review by the people is also necessary. At the outset, though, it will require Australians to 1. Build a statement of their values as a society. 2. Enshrine human rights and obligations in law along with a process for conferring and protecting those rights. Three, it will require Australians to enshrine a system or process which will lift the voice of Australians to a level of coherence at which their will, particularly for the future, can be understood and actively fulfilled by the elected. And finally, four, it will require Australians to freshly describe some of the limits to power for those we elect, and some new systems for preventing corruption of elections. These are the essential elements of the guidance that elected parliamentarians need and that electors need if they are to start again as a nation. The next chapters set out how each of these can be built into Australia's constitution. Chapter 5, Essential number 1, Building a Statement of Australian national values. Part one. In its release of the Australian choice model, the Australian republican movement acknowledged that more work needed to be done on the constitution beyond installing an Australian head of state. Accordingly, they appointed a constitutional advisory body, a panel that included several of Australia's most eminent constitutional law experts to draft amendments that could demonstrate how their Australian choice model could be incorporated into the existing constitution. The panel suggested the need to include a new preamble, but stated that, quote, the wording of such a preamble would be a matter of much reflection, and we did not attempt to draft one, unquote. No suggestions were made as to why a new preamble was considered necessary. Nevertheless, we might assume that something new at the front of the Constitution is required, if only because the Constitutional Convention of 1998, formed to consider whether Australia should become a republic, resulted in a communique from the Convention to the Parliament suggesting the need for a statement of Australian values. This in turn resulted in the design of a new preamble to the Constitution which was put to a referendum in 1999 alongside a question regarding becoming a republic with a President appointed by a two-thirds majority of the Federal Parliament. It is a matter of history that neither question on the referendum succeeded. In the majority, Australians rejected the preamble and the idea of becoming the proposed type of republic. In the case of the new preamble... The failure stemmed largely from the fact that the process for its development was simply too exclusive to succeed. Had the preamble been developed by genuine consultation, consistent with the intentions of the communique, this may have resulted in our first statement of agreed national values. As it happened, though, the requested preamble was effectively hijacked in several ways. In the end, it was devised by a single person, the then Prime Minister, John Howard. This version discarded significant aspects of the intention of the Convention as expressed in its communique. However, if we accept the proposition that a statement of value should be included as an overarching preamble, providing a new context for the Constitution, a context which is about what Australians and the Australian nation stand for in constituting themselves as a federation, not what Britain stood for in 1901, then what values should we espouse as a 21st century nation? If we were starting from scratch with a clean slate, what national character would we desire? Could we agree on this? In essence, I would contend that we can. And to say that we cannot is to deny that people can coalesce around principles of any sort when obviously they can and do if they are given the opportunity. Indeed, in 1998, at the Constitutional Convention, the delegates begged to be given the chance. On the first day of the convention, the then-chairman of the Australian Republican movement, Malcolm Turnbull, put the following proposal. Quote, we believe that the preamble should be amended. If it is to remain a statement of history, then it should pay appropriate regard and respect to Aboriginal history. The preamble should also affirm our commitment to those core political values which define our nation. After being initially surprised by this proposal, the delegates responded with alacrity to the possibility of being able to describe the values of the nation. The University of Sydney's Professor Mark McKenna, a consultant to the Australian Parliament for the convention, documented the response of the delegates in 2000 as follows. In the days that followed, Mr Turnbull's sentiment received almost unanimous support, while debate surrounding the preamble attracted some of the most inspiring and unusual speeches of the Convention. For many delegates, the preamble had become an essential and defining element of the future republic, Delegates in favour of writing a new preamble employed language which, only a decade earlier, would have been applied rarely to the Australian Constitution. A list of phrases used by Convention delegates as metaphors for the preamble proves revealing. The phrases included a new beginning, a euphonic, useful and uniting statement of fact, a moral imperative, a moral charter, a mission statement, a vision statement, something to tell us who we are, something to believe in, a document to reinvigorate the national narrative, the things we hold dear, a welcome mat, the lymph gland. This catalogue of sometimes clumsy, poetic images also included words such as truth, meaning, origins, values, aspirations, hopes, ownership, inclusion, heritage, spirituality, desires, feelings, justice, equality, cohesion and settlement. For the first time, Australians were imagining their constitution as a civic creed. Mark McKenna went on to say that much was being asked of a preamble at the convention. Some wanted a creation myth, some a myth of nationhood. Others wanted a statement of historical truths or a democratic covenant, some kind of antidote to the breakdown of traditional systems of belief and traditional institutions, an alternative to crass materialism, a document in which the people would belong. McKenna expanded on this by saying that, unlike the flawed and grimy world of day-to-day partisan politics... Many delegates hoped that a new preamble would be a means of lifting politics above cynicism and corruption. It should be something to revere, a tablet of stone to cherish. At times it seemed as if the convention was witnessing a profound change in the republic debate, a shift from pragmatism to poetry. Although many delegates who spoke in favour of a new preamble believed the preamble should be justiciable, they mentioned this rarely, preferring instead to couch their arguments in emotive language, What is encouraging about the 1998 Constitutional Convention is that when given the opportunity, the delegates to that convention, who came from a wide array of backgrounds and opinions, political and non-political, were excited by the exercise of imagining what Australia can become, and rallied to the concept of expressing values for our society in evocative language. They came together on this, and in just two days. And many of them even thought a preamble of national values should be justiciable. In other words, it should be used to determine whether laws which undermine those values are unconstitutional. If elites from such different partisan and ideological backgrounds as the delegates were can coalesce so quickly on this, as though there is a ready acceptance of the existence somewhere, of a common, instinctual set of values that we must define in order to create the possibility of a nation, then there is no reason why the Australian people could not articulate their preferred national character. In any case, it is plainly unhealthy, indeed downright dangerous, To blunder on with a constitution which mentions nothing in regard to what binds us together as a nation. What we commonly stand for or agree is good. On that basis the following sections canvass the history of how the debate about Australian values has been framed at various levels in the 21st century by various governments and various pieces of research on the values of the nation compared to the values of individual Australians. This is an essential input to any forthcoming debate about what values might and or should be included in a people's constitution, one capable of coherently expressing the aspirations of such a diverse nation.